We're in Psalm 5 tonight, if you want to turn there. All these little tabs are cross-references, so buckle your, your seatbelts and get, get ready for some, some, uh, some cross-references and, and flipping, and it's, it's so good for you to see it with your own eyes. I, I'd like to just read it to you, and sometimes we have to because it's so much, but so much better for you to see it with your own eyes, mark it, do what you want to do with it. Um, uh, so Psalm 5. We're going to also do 6 and 7, but we'll tie it in as Psalm 5 goes. I'll just read through Psalm 5 as we sang it tonight. Give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray, my voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. And in the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth, and their inward parts destruction. Their throat is an open tomb, they flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God, let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you, and let them ever shout for joy, because you defend them, and let those also Love your name, be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. Amen. Psalm 5. Um, the introduction really is in verse 3 um, because it's uh, just something you can pick up on and, and encourage. And that's just getting up in the morning and seeking the Lord. Um, I'm sure many of you, uh, you know, we wake up in the morning, we have our responsibilities. Um, we got our jobs on our mind and our families, and we have to get ready for the day, get a shower, get some coffee, get some, some uh, breakfast. And um, it is not natural for us to wake up and immediately begin a one-on-one with the Lord. The most natural thing for us is to, to just start getting on about our day and maybe having the worries that we have and, and all of that. Some of us wake up uh, with afflictions and, and difficulty, difficult issues, that require immediate assistance. Um, some of us wake up in pain. And um, there is grace for that. It should never be some grievous uh, obligation or religious obligation that we get up every morning and have to hit the knees and, and uh, go through that. You know, just to call on the Lord, our, our Lord and Savior, uh, you know, to simply call on Him for anything ever should never be grievous or an obligation. But we are disciples. And that implies discipline. And so it does speak to the benefits, if nothing else, of, of uh, calling on the Lord first thing in the morning. David talks about it in many of his psalms. Um, how he calls out first thing in the morning. It's the best time of day. I think I've said that before from here. I used to tell my daughter that uh, nothing good happens after 9 o'clock at night. You know, go to bed. Wake up in the morning at 5 a.m. That's when all the good stuff happens. You can call on the Lord. You can pray. You got clear thoughts. You're feeling good sometimes. And 
So not every day we'll uh, have life-changing decisions, but we never know what a day is going to bring. And so it's good to start with prayer, with seeking the Lord. I wanted to say, too, we're individuals. Um, there's as many stories as there are human beings. Like I said, some of us wake up in, in, uh, in, in difficulties. And yet the Bible applies to every individual the same. And um, to address our biggest distraction these days, I was going to just sidetrack on this because the Lord deals with us as individuals. We wake up, we don't need to get together right away with a group and pray because he deals with each one of us as individuals and there's nothing wrong with getting together as a group and seeking him as, as a like-minded fellowship. He loves that. Blessed are those that dwell together uh, with like-minded brothers. But, uh, you know, biggest distraction these days is politics, you know, and that's why any political or social governance, if you will, and forgive me for this little sidetrack, but that doesn't include the Lord um, and the God-given rights of the individual. And, you know, it falls short because it has to categorize and divide into demographics. Um, Emphasis on the individual's responsibility. God deals with us as individuals. Um, and mutual respect for other individuals and their responsibilities is the least divisive type of you know, society and government there is, the individuals and being responsible, whereas the social engineering is going to you know, take away any individual's rights and you know, cause division. But no man-made government or society can ever accomplish what only Jesus can accomplish when he brings his kingdom, brings him... Uh, his kingdom, and he reigns in righteousness. I get sidetracked on this because, you know, I want us, when we think of seeking the Lord, to know that, that he sees us as, as individuals. Um, we're we're uh, the one-on-one, I like to say. It's so good to have a one-on-one with the Lord. Um, in the meantime, it's God who raises up and tears down kings and kingdoms, rulers and societies, some of which throughout history were glorious but are now nothing but dust and uh, but no one person has any privilege over anyone else with God and and you think about that in in the world today everybody's thinking of privileges but any one of us that wants to can call on the Lord anyone who seeks him can enjoy a one-on-one with the Lord at any time we're all different he made each one of us different he loves us individually we're looking at David and his life we may or may not be anything like David was. You know, we may see some good things, and we certainly are going to see the nature of God towards us. Um, we're all different. You know, look at what Paul says. Let's go to Acts 17 real quick and read just on, on this little sidetrack. It turned into a lot more than I thought it would. Um, but Acts 17, uh, 24 through 28, he was in... Greece and Athens, and he wanders up uh, walking around while he's laid over there basically on, a, on his uh, boat trip, and he starts walking around. He comes up to this place. The Greeks were the philosophers. They like to discuss all the latest things and all, and, and he walks up to this uh, uh, Areopagus, um, and he stood in the midst of this Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. 
Let's notice this. God who made the world, everything in it, since he is the Lord of the heavens and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives all life, breath, and things, all of us individuals. And he has made from one blood every nation of men who dwell on the earth, on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in hope, and, and they might grope for him, or they might look for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. Uh, they quote these guys, for we are also his offspring. But my point being, you know, the Bible applies to every single human being the same, even though we're all individuals. So no matter what country in the world, whether blessed or outright horrific, any man, woman, or child can call out to the Lord. And many do, and he hears. He has many in every part of this world. He's reserved for himself many all over this world. He's heard and saved, and they're heirs with Christ and with us as we are. So going back, uh, talking about Psalm 5, seeking God. If you turn to Deuteronomy 4, um, Verse 29, um, some of the things we notice about seeking the Lord. The, Ish, the Israelites were uh, about to enter the promised land. and Moses recounts the exodus and reminds the Israelites that they had initially refused to enter the, the land and had wandered in the desert. And now they're, they're about to cross over, and he warns them against idolatry. And even foreseeing that they would, one day be scattered into the world because they, they committed idolatry anyway. You know, he tells them that even from anywhere in the world, they can seek God and find him if they seek him with all their hearts and all their souls. And so in Deuteronomy 4.29, we see what the Lord is looking for. Um, it says, but from, from there, anywhere that they were scattered, um, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. And so the first thing I was going to you know, point out about David when he seeks the Lord and talking about seeking God is to seek him with your whole heart, with your whole mind, your whole soul, all your strength. Um, it's not a half-hearted, casual, part-time thing, Christianity. You know, it's... Uh, you know, whenever it's convenient for you, nicely tucked away on a Sunday morning when you can, you know, set it aside and then go about living your own life um, the rest of the week. Uh, if you're going to walk with God, then don't hold back. Usually people hold back for fear, fear of being mocked by friends, family, and coworkers maybe, fear of outright persecution, maybe losing jobs or threats to their finances. But really all that is is idolatry, you know, you have a different God if you're worried about these things. You serve yourself with all your heart. That's who you're protecting. And you throw a little bit to the Lord on Sunday mornings, you know, the ones that would not seek him with all their heart. And if it's something that's not uh, all in, you know, don't hold back. Some learn how to give just the minimums and, you know, keep the maximum they can when serving the Lord. In reality, that is idolatry. Jesus called it serving two masters, and he doesn't accept it. Second Chronicles 7.14 is another attribute of seeking the Lord. If you want to flip there at your own risk. 
God speaking to Solomon after he uh, dedicated the temple at Jerusalem. It says, uh, when I shut up heaven and there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray uh, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now, Notice the, the context is, is Israel and the land. Um, but what does he say? You know, he promises to hear when they call him out, when they call upon him. But it's about being humble, you know, humbling themselves, turning from wickedness and finding forgiveness. It's about repentance. You know, beware. I got a friend who I didn't really understand what virtue signaling is. Anybody, everybody know what that kind of means these days? Where people are throwing stuff at you to make you basically feel guilty and act on it. you know. And I never knew what that really meant, but unfortunately, this particular verse that I just read, oftentimes Christians will use against other Christians to hold us responsibility for the state of our country. And that's not true. Um, this has to do with the land of Israel. This has to do with God's covenant with his land and him hearing and restoring and healing their land Certainly we need to pray, and we can certainly need to pray for our land. But it's not a, a, a trip that anybody should lay on another believer that it's their fault that the country is where it is, or that we have the, the sin that we have in our land, such as abortion and other things. Certainly we need to pray, and we can pray uh, every day, and we should for those things, uh, that we be at peace with all men. But I just wanted to know that you can look at this verse, and you can see it for what it is. He's just saying, if you're going to pray, if you're going to seek him, start with humility, start with humbling yourselves, turning away from wickedness, finding forgiveness, and all. The application for us is God's own nature toward them and for us when we seek him. Some of the things that he promises those that seek him in Psalm 9, you can jot these down. I'm not going to turn to all of them. If you want to take notes, jot them down. Psalm 9, verses 9 and 10 he is a refuge and will not forsake those that seek him. Psalm 14, verse 2, he looks for those that seek him. Let's turn to Psalm 27. That one's got a few spots in it to just look at. Uh, Psalm 27, um, verse 4, and uh, 7, 8, and 14. In verse 4 it says, I have... Wait, that's not the one. Verse 4, one thing I have desired of the Lord... And that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. He seeks to be with the Lord. And says in 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry uh, with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, Lord, I will seek. And in verse 14, Wait on the Lord and be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, again I say, wait. In Psalm 34, it says you shall lack for no good thing. The entire psalm is a good one to read um, regarding seeking the Lord. Psalm 63, 1 through 7, his loving kindness is better than life. Seeking the Lord and, and having his loving kindness you know, uh, be shed on you. Psalm 69, 29 through 33, it says you'll be glad and your heart shall live is the promise of those, to those who seek the Lord. In uh, Proverbs 28, verse 5, those that seek the Lord will gain understanding, it says. 
Um, in Isaiah 26, 7 through 9, it says to learn righteousness. Seeking the Lord to learn righteousness. Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, says he will be found by us. And again, it talks about when we seek him with all our heart. If we seek him. Matthew uh, 6, 25 through 33, let's look at what the Lord said. Um, if you want to flip over to Matthew 20, or Matthew chapter 6. Uh, 25 through 33, and I'll read it. Talking about uh, seeking the Lord and, and you know why it's so important, why it gives us what we need um, rather than worrying about the things in this life. It says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is, it, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is today is and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, and what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek after. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." Bottom line, seek the kingdom of God, right? And that's our side of things, maybe. That might be our responsibility a little bit. And flip the page, or not even, to just the next chapter 7, verse 7. He says, ask it, it'll be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. And on to 11, for any, everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And that is such a, such a good comfort to me, to know that we can ask him. Because he's never going to you know, pull his hand back. He's never going to trick us. He's never going to give us something that's bad for us. He's always going to give us um, things that are good for us. And as we saw earlier, seek him with all your heart, it says. Now, getting back to Psalm 5, that was all chapter 5, verse 3. Going back to verses 1 and 2, getting to know who is this Lord, King, and God that David was seeking. Who is uh, David looking at here, and, and how does he know him? And notice it says, give ear. In other words, hear or listen, that means. Consider, the word is, uh, uh, definition is discern, understand, perceive, observe, market, give heed, be intelligent about it, it says. You know, that's this word consider. And meditations is one of those interesting words. It, it means whisper or, or mutter or you're musing about it, you're thinking about it. It's something you're churning over in your mind. And so the Lord hears more than what we say out loud. He hears our hearts. If you remember Nehemiah when he went before the king and to try and 
uh, um, he couldn't express what he wanted to, and he was had a bad countenance, and the king asked him, what's going on? And in his own heart, he, he prayed, and the Lord heard him. And so we know that uh, certainly we can lift up our voice. And something happens when we do lift up our voice that's special because we hear ourselves and we're thinking about what we're saying. We're not just, you know, letting it kind of daydream off into distraction. But here he's talking about this, this whisper, this musing, he's thinking about it. Going back to the beginnings, we're going to go to First uh, Samuel 17. But in uh, going back to the beginnings of David's relationship with the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. This is the God of Israel. This is who David knew. In 1 Samuel 15 and 16, we see it's because King Saul had turned his back from following the Lord, and so the prophet Samuel went to the house of Jesse, and God chose David, the shepherd boy, from among his brothers. Samuel anointed him, and it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So he's just, right now, he's just hanging out with the sheep. He was out by the gate, and he had to go find him. And it said, uh, the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. And so, you know, the Spirit was on David from that day forward, but uh, Saul was distressed now from a, from a, basically an evil spirit from God. It says, a spirit from God troubled him. His servants suggested some music. You know, I guess that might be something uh, to consider these days. I don't know, but uh, if you're having a troubled spirit, but... Uh, you know, and they said, you know, this music will help heal you, King Saul. And, and they knew of this son, Jesse, and he was a skilled uh, musician. And it seems that Saul kind of already knew about him because he says, well, yeah, let's go get that David. Uh, um, his response was to ask specifically for David, who is with the sheep. And so at this point, uh, word is already out um, on David. It says of David that he was skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, and prudent of speech, which is interesting. He's one of those guys that, one of those rare individuals that thinks before he talks, I guess. It says he was prudent of speech. First Samuel 17, verse 31 uh, through 47, uh, the story of David and Goliath, just a bit of a... a a piece of it I'm going to take out just to make a few points. And, um, but when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul. He was talking about uh, Goliath, you know, who's letting this guy get away with this stuff, you know. And um, verse 32, Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. David's ready to go, right? Um, but David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and, deli- and, and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this circumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has devi- defiled the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So who's getting the credit here? Is David saying, I did all this? No, he's already given glory to the Lord. Long before Samuel ever anointed him, he was already singing, playing, and counting the Lord as the one who delivered him from these things. And so Saul clothed David with his armor, and Saul is what, 6'6", six, six, and David's not, not so much. 
with his armor and put bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David fastened the sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. And so David took them off. And he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch, which he, and his, um, which he had. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew the, near the, the Philistine. And so the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day will give... I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. David thought nothing of himself, um, but gave God the glory for delivering him. Long before he ever saw this Philistine, even before Samuel showed up in Bethlehem. But notice the ultimate motive here is something you don't often see in verse 46 and 47. It says that all the earth may know that God is in Israel. Part of his motive wasn't, he knew the Lord. He fellowshiped with the Lord. He walked with the Lord. He gave him glory for the things that, that took place. You know, I don't know anything, but if it's possible that the reason that God says of David that he was a man after his own heart, might very well be that his desire that all the earth knew God. He wanted uh, his enemies to, wanted to warn his enemies. But the Psalms, uh, we see all over that um, he desires so that men would put their trust in God. And so verses two, uh, 1 and 2, skipping down to verse 4 of Psalm 5. Not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. We'll contrast that with your pagan gods. Contrast that with your, your uh, gods of this world. I mean, a God who dwells with wickedness. Uh, your, your temple prostitutes. Your, your uh, um, you know, the God Molech where they would sacrifice their kids. They didn't want the responsibility. They just gave all the wickedness and these, these false gods created by men and created by demons. But from the beginning... When Eve believed the lie and um, the fall of man, sin entered the world. Wickedness is found in the heart of man. Cain kills Abel and goes out from the presence of the Lord. Men multiply on the earth, populate the world. But by the time the Lord brings the flood, the earth is filled with violence and murder and vengeance, it says. Fallen angels are finding their way to marry into humanity until the earth is filled with violence. And it says in Genesis 6, verse 5, it says, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so God brings the flood and begins again with Noah and his descendants. 
Nevertheless, the heart of man is by nature in rebellion against God and wicked. And being of one language, they build a tower. They want to take control for themselves and to make a name for themselves and to prevent from being scattered throughout the earth, it says, and populate the face of the earth like God had commanded. And so, you know, God confuses their language, scatters them across the face of the earth. God still loves mankind. He goes on to um, say, willing that none would perish. But, so he chooses Abraham, makes a covenant with Abraham to bless him. And through his descendants to bring his Messiah and redeem mankind back to himself. So verse 5, God will not dwell with evil. You know, he's not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Um, contrast that with the pagan gods. Again, made by men, made by demons. Maybe they're made out of sticks and stones and rocks. But uh, men would do the most horrific things to appease their gods, the wickedness that they would do. They abided with plenty of wickedness and demons that created them. It says, God has no pleasure in wickedness. And it goes on to say, the boastful will not stand in his presence. The Bible has a lot to say about boasting. As believers, it really seems foolish that we would boast in anything, right? Knowing that we were completely lost when Jesus you know, saved us, picked us up, called us to himself. He forgave us and gave us eternal life. And yet often we see those who would declare what they have done for the Lord or even subtly remind, you know, of their labor and their struggles and their achievements. Um, when in fact, really, we have nothing to do with anything good in us, do we? You know, um, anything good in us is something he gave us. Um, read, uh, I'm going to take us over to 1 Corinthians. Let's all turn over there and we'll spend a little time kind of making this point. First um, Corinthians, just chapter 1, right up front. When in fact, we have nothing good in us that he didn't give us. Read it a little bit and we'll come back and talk about it. First Corinthians 1, and we'll go 18, verse 18, all the way through chapter 2, verse 16. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And um, uh, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom, did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brother, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. I'm so glad this verse is in the Bible. Not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. The base things of the world, the things that are despised by God. God has chosen. And the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Everything the opposite of the way the world thinks. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom 
the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, and that it is, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And we're getting the point here, but let's go on. It says, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. Now, it's interesting. Paul was a Pharisee. He knew the law. He, was, he used to chase down the Christians in, in, for the Jews. Um, you know, he'd been to, to Jewish seminary, if you will, you know, and all. But when he was cast down, you know, he got knocked off his horse. And that's where we get the expression. And he realized he didn't know anything. It says, For I determined not to know anything among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. Do we always picture the Apostle Paul that way when we think about him when he came before people? You know, trembling, much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Hang on to that for Sunday, because we're going to be talking about the wisdom of men a little bit. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom of God, ordained before the ages for our glory, um, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Praise the Lord for that too, because we've got a lot coming. Um, not coming to us for what we deserve. I mean, we've got a lot laying ahead of us. <laughs> That's what I mean by that. Um, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For his spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of man? which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. And now we, even so, where was I going to go to? To 16, yeah. Um, uh, So, for what man knows, uh, verse 12, For now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now go to chapter 3, verse 18 talking about avoiding this worldly wisdom. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ's and Christ in God. Going back to verse 21, therefore let no one boast in men. So even if you're not boasting in yourself, don't be bragging on your favorite guy, you know, your favorite teacher, your favorite pastor, anything else like that. Don't, you know, he says don't boast in any of the things that are things of men. 
And that is in the context of the worldly wisdom more so than certainly we should uh, commend those that teach the Word of God and stick to it rather than getting off onto you know, heresy and commend those guys. But it's not about boasting. It's about giving God the glory. Um, the context here is divisions. Obviously, we um, caused in the Corinthian church by those that were looking to men and not to God. So they would boast about Paul or Apollos or you know, might as well be Luther or Calvin or, or the papacy these days or maybe some Calvary guy versus some Baptist guy, you know, whatever. Well, you know, why rely on man? You know, why would you want to rely on any man or any doctrine or tradition of, of men? You know, divisive doctrines are all over the place today. Things that are taught in the scriptures that have, you know, time, time coming yet before we'll really know, but men want to talk about it. They want to divide about it. They want to have their, their, their view. Sometimes we just need to wait if we don't understand everything in the scriptures, you know. But, um, you know, uh, seek God with, with all your heart, it says, right? Pouring over his word for wisdom and understanding. Praying and asking God for answers, each one of us individually. And certainly God's given pastors and teachers, you know, gifts for edifying the church and building up the body. That's that's the part of the gifts, and and not not all are, and not all can speak in tongues, and we know that not all can heal, not all can, you know, even have the gift of service, even though that would seem to be obvious that everybody should. But um, Paul would say that he knew nothing among them except Christ crucified, you know, except Christ and Him crucified. The Bereans were commended, right, for looking into the Scriptures themselves to prove what was said by Paul. And he never, you know, how did Paul ever write, you know, the epistles without Calvin and Luther and all these guys? It's so much division over these these teachers because uh, they they have to get their men's wisdom onto something in order to have that uh, trait and characteristic to the way that people would rather call themselves Lutherans than call themselves Christians, you know. Where is the boasting? Ephesians 2, if you can flip over a couple pages, or maybe a dozen pages. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. It says, you're alive, um, and, and you he made alive. You were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others left alone were children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, because by grace you have been saved, raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Then the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." It says, for grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. You know, when you have a passage like that, you want to take a piece of paper and you want to write up at the top. You say, those things that we have in Jesus, those things that we have now that he had mercy on us. And you make that list and you see, and it's a glorious thing. It leads us to want to worship. It leads us to want to praise his name. But verse 9, it says, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, yes, 
which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in those, walk in the good works that he prepared for him, but not of works. Why? So no man can boast. Are we doing this for ourselves? Is, or are we doing it for him, to his glory? Why would we want to brag in anything good in us? Why not give him the glory? First, uh, getting back to Psalm 5. we got a ways to go yet, and we got some time left. Psalm 5, verse 4. Getting back to that a little bit. Um, it says, he hates the workers of iniquity. The word there, hate, is an interesting word. It means hate. That's the definition in the Hebrew. Hate means hate. We have no other way to say it. Now, the workers, the word there is interesting. It's to do. I mean, we think of all that, get it done. To make and get it going and keep it going. That's the word workers. Iniquity is interesting, too. It means trouble. It means wickedness. It means sorrows. Workers of iniquity. To do, to make, to get it going and keep it going. Trouble, wickedness, and sorrow. They're going at it and they're going to get it done, they're going to keep it going. Trouble. This is wickedness. You know, it speaks of a type of guy that makes trouble, keeps it going, and wants to bring himself and all those around him into this wickedness. And no matter how many people they take down, you know, as many souls as they can, you know, there's, there's uh, you know, they just want to keep it going. It's not just they make a mistake once and stumble and, and somebody falls and, and, you know, that's certainly wickedness. But there are two kinds of wickedness in scriptures. It's interesting that you look it up. One of them is something that you do to yourself or we do to ourselves or someone does to themselves and, and others might happen. Somebody gets hurt. But then there are those types that the Bible talks about that they are bent on taking down as many people as they can take with them. It's a wickedness. It's, a, it's a, um, uh, just a, a wickedness that um, is egregious. Um, these are the workers of iniquity that it says God hates them. I've done wicked things. I've hurt people. I've done things that, that uh, uh, you know, are shameful. And that is wickedness. That is a, a stumbling and all. But these are the guys that God hates that continue it. They build it. They keep it going. And they want to take as many people along with them. Going down to verse 6 in Psalm 5, it talks about liars. Um, verses 5 the boastful shall not stand in your sight you hate all the workers of iniquity you shall destroy those who speak falsehood liars definition there anything that deceives okay deceives for gain maybe or deludes by false hopes yeah man go for it you can do it you know if you get to 90 miles an hour you'll make it across the river you know people who are deceiving they're deluding people you know to give them false hope Oftentimes getting us to do things that the Lord would never have us do, trying to tell us that we need to, um, trying to uh, impose their rules to, in order to have some type, some type of control. Um, it's used of idols and false oracles. In other words, those that misrepresent the Lord. So a liar, anything that deceives, and those that misrepresent the Lord. In, in the second part of uh, verse 6, it says, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, bloodthirsty is first spoken, or the shedding of blood, or that word, not necessarily bloodthirsty, but 
um, comes from when, when Abel's blood was in the ground, calling out to the Lord that Cain had, had spilt. Um, comes again in David likely referring to Saul when Jonathan persuaded his father uh, not to shed innocent blood by killing David when he was on the run from Saul. Very possibly here he's talking about this in verse 6. You know, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty man. And, um, but also, again, this is about those that, whether for gain or for not, they're deceiving someone, and as many people so that they can, eat to come to harm or even to, to perish. And uh, these are these bloodthirsty types. Um, when you shed innocent blood or kill someone, then their blood is required of, of you. In other words, your life for theirs. That's uh, what the Lord would, would uh, say. And he obviously it says the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty who uses deceit to shed blood even. Uh, David, along with his uh, many mighty men, were men of war. They slew many. Uh, except for Uriah, as far as we know, all of it had to do with taking uh, the land that God had promised them or fighting the enemies of Israel. But what does the Bible say about bloodthirsty men? Real quick, I'm going to go to Proverbs. If you want, you can flip along. Proverbs 1, um, 10 through 19. It says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie and wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions and we shall fill our houses with the spoil. Cast in your lot with us. Let us all have one purse and my son do not walk with them. Keep your foot from their path for their feet run to evil and they make haste. They jump, jump right into it to shed blood. And Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. And in Proverbs 6, a few pages over, 16 and 17. This is something kind of interesting. You don't often hear about things God hates. Um, Psalms, David is very forthright he knows his god he's fought hard for the things that uh, god commanded him to do and for his land he was king and he was he was all in but proverbs 6 16 and 17 these six things the lord hates yes seven are an abomination to him a proud look a lying tongue hands that shed innocent blood we'll keep reading a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. That's right, look out. And um, Proverbs 29.10 says, The bloodthirsty hate the blameless, but the upright seek his well-being. This tells me that we can expect persecution from this type of person. You're seeking to walk before the Lord. He's made us. He presents us before the Father, blameless and without accusation or without fault. And this type of person is out there in our world. You know, uh, expect persecution from this type of person. Bloodthirsty people. 
They hate somebody who's walking up right before the Lord. And I can only say, may God keep our paths from crossing. You know, um, nobody wants to be involved with that. And yet, um, the days are, are not even just coming, but in, in the rest of the world. Many people live like that, live with that. Bloodthirsty men. There's religions that are full-on bloodthirsty. It's, you see it in everything that they, that they do. And um, all of the wars they fight uh, in the name of religion. And um, they take no second look at just taking somebody's head off. Let me get, may God keep our paths from crossing. And, and, um, but it says, the Lord abhors, going back to Psalm 5 and verse 6. And, and um, the word abhor is to loathe as an abomination or to detest as much as you can, you know, think of that. The word loathe, you know, we're new, never used to know what that meant, you know, but it says here of the, the things that um, the Lord hates and um, the things that the Lord loathes are those who are quick to shed blood. Uh, Psalm 5, back to Psalm 5, verses 7 and 8. Here's the good stuff. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. I will fear you. I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. It says, um, mercy here is, is kindness, as the word means kindness. Coming to the Lord before him in his kindness towards us. I can't help but think of Exodus 34, and I think we should all have that one kind of marked anyway, to bookmark we can go to any time. Because David knew his Lord. I started off this little section by talking about, you know, who is this God that David knows? Who is this he has fellowship with and he goes to seek? Exodus 34, Moses had gone back up Mount Sinai the second time to get the Ten Commandments. Uh, because, um, uh, you know, he came down with the Ten Commandments and they were, they'd built themselves a golden calf and they're all around watching, the, uh, worshiping this golden calf and, and again, pagan gods. They're indulging in evil and wickedness while they're doing it. But he's back up to, uh, and the Lord, he's back up to get the second set of commandments. Um, and, and he asks the Lord, um, Let's pick it up in, in verse 5. Um, well, let's not. Let's go back into chapter 33, and I'll just kind of talk about it. He asked the Lord if he could see him, if he could see his face, if he could see his glory specifically. And the Lord had said in previous chapters that, that uh, you know, you, no man will see God's face and live. You know, no man, uh, you cannot dwell with a holy God and being a sinful man, uh, so he, he said that to him, but it says in verse 5, Nevertheless, when I walk past, I'll, I'll show you. Um, now the Lord descended in the cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty. In other words, you know, he's not going to lie about our state. 
you know, visit, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the children's children, the third and fourth generation. And so Moses, notice, made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. He says, now if I have found favor and grace in your sight, Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. We're going to spend more time there on Sunday in, in uh, Exodus 34, but fear is awesome and terrifying. It's from the object that causes it, that word fear. Um, in verse 7, in fear of you, I will worship toward your holy mountain. Um, it has more to do with, with respect, reverence, and even piety toward God in this context and, and in the definition here in verse 7. When you're faced with your own sin, and maybe the worst shame that you know about yourself, and you're unable to hide it, you're unable to run, you know, maybe someone's about to find out, maybe there's red and blue lights outside the house, um, and at that time, you become aware of God's grace and mercy. At that time, uh, there's forgiveness, and you're made aware of it, even though you know right then and there you are guilty. You are uh, ashamed. And, you know, what do you do, you know, at that time? You're going to fall down. You're going to worship. You know, you're going you're to praise the Lord. You're going to have thankfulness. It's, it's, we know grace. And to, for grace to grow, we need to show grace to one another. But for, grace to even, for us to even know what grace is, we need to know how shameful our sin is, to know how gracious God has been to us. And, and sometimes it takes being brought to that place, even once we've been believers, to come face to face with something that we absolutely despise in ourselves and then come to see that forgiveness and come to see that grace. Calling on his name, getting that mercy, being restored, being forgiven. You know, it's going to bring joy, thankfulness, worship, and a desire to, right walk, or to walk rightly, I should say, and to be led by God in righteousness. We're not going to want to keep going after that thing. We're ashamed. And, and, and that's why he came. That's why he died for those things. Not that we can continue to walk in them. It makes common sense. Sure, sure we're weak and sure we stumble, but that's not, uh, that's not uh, what we're talking about. We're talking about people who just walk after it without even thinking twice. You know, if you don't know what that is, that kind of grace, that kind of um, uh, being made aware so that we worship, ask for it. David at one point asked the Lord to see if there'd be any wicked way in him. You know, lead him to in righteousness. Just to skip over in context to this in, in Psalm 6, and I realize I'm just not going to get done. Well, we'll see. Psalm 6, um, verses 1 through 4, you know, he's crying out, Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. By the way, that is the same two words used of why do the nations rage, and the Lord looks in, in his anger, his the word there is uh, nostril, face, and that, that uh, hot displeasure, that fury. So now David's talking about for himself. You know, he's, he's ashamed. Don't rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. He's talking physically. He's not talking about, you know, carnally. He's talking about physical weakness and, and feebleness. Is that word there, uh, weak? Um. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. Physically, he's distressed. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? 
Return, O Lord, deliver me. I think of how long you think of the saints around the throne that were martyred for his name. Um, Return, O Lord, deliver me. Oh, save me for your mercy's sake. Not because I'm a good guy. For your mercy's sake, Lord. Sometimes physical distress tests our faith and wondering when he's going to respond. And sometimes there's time that goes by. In verse 5, For in death there is no remembrance of you, and in the grave who will give you thanks? I mean, he's right to the door. He's right to the the point of, of such a deep depression and grief under pressure, and it says from his enemies in, in uh, verse 6 and 7. You know, it's his last plea for God's mercy. He's thinking he's going to be dead soon. I am weary with my groaning, and all night long I make my bed swim. Man, those are some rough nights. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief, and it grows old because of all my enemies. And... Uh, Verses 8 through 10, it's depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Now who's ashamed? He says, let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. You know, David, the Lord always hears, right? We call out to him for his mercy. He's going to hear us. And it's with this confidence that the Lord has had mercy on him. David's not just ready to turn around and go out there and start walking in his flesh again. He's, he's, this is repentance. This is mercy. He's in rough shape. And so with confidence, he can turn and rebuke those that are trying to trouble him. That same type of idea here. Those that are the wicked, those workers of iniquity. Same as in Psalm 5, workers of iniquity. Those guys that start it, they get it going, and they keep it going. What? Sorrow. And trouble for David. That's these same kind of things. And so he's saying, you guys, you know, the Lord deal with you. Lord, you know, the Lord's going to receive my prayer. You guys be ashamed, you know. Psalm 7, same thing. Um, By the way, Psalms 3 through 7 are often thought of as those that deal with when he was running from Absalom. And a little bit from when he's running from Saul. Talking about his enemies here. He's not talking about the Philistines. And it's, uh, it's a hard thing to hear that those of his own, the house of Israel, are the ones that are given them this grief. And so verses uh, 1 and 2 in Psalm 7, O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me. Lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces, while there is none to deliver. So notice again the wicked. Again, in Proverbs 29.10 we talked about that. Those that are pursuing violence and persecution. Verses 3 through 5, O my Lord God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who is at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. You know, if I'm guilty, then so be it. Um, You know, but let's let God be the judge. What does he say in verses Six to the uh, to the end, it says, "Arise in your anger, Lord. Lift up yourself, because of the rage of my enemies." So even if it, you know, he he knows if I've done this, Lord, and he's prayed, you know, if there's anything in me, you know, seek me, O Lord, seek and search me, O Lord. Anyway, so, so the congregation of the people shall surround you, for their sakes. Therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. 
according to my integrity within me. Again, that seeking him, seeking the Lord for his mercy, not his own good stuff. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. You know, for, uh, for the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. Now he's talking about God being the judge here. My defense is of God. Who saves the upright in heart? God is a just judge, not you guys. And God is, an angry, is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword, he bends his bow, makes it ready, prepares for himself instruments of death, he makes his arrows to fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity, and he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. Again, these are the guys the Lord hates. He made a pit, dug it out, and has fallen into the ditch which he made. He was setting a trap for somebody, and he ended up falling into it. His trouble shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. And so let God be the judge. I wanted to go to Romans 2, verses 1 through 11. And um, after Romans 1, he, he's talking about the wickedness and how the Lord turns, turns the wicked over, those that refuse to believe him, refuse even to acknowledge the Lord, and he turns them over. The first part of uh, Romans chapter 2 is, but, but who then are any of us? Or any of you, he says to the Jews at the time, that would judge. You do the same things. And so he talks about Romans, or talking about Romans 2, verses 1 through 11. You can, you can jot that note down for yourself. But in verse 17 of Psalm 7, it says, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. I hope that's a comfort to you guys because you know what? We sin. We're ashamed. We call out to God for his mercy. God judges us. God sets us up. He redeems us. He puts us back. Don't let anybody else then judge you. You know, sure, you might reap what you sowed. You know, if you're going to rob a bank, you're going to go to jail. You'll be in jail, but God's going to forgive. God's going to save you and draw you to himself while you're doing your time. Psalm 5, back there to verses 9 and 10. It says, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb, and they flatter with their tongue. They pronounce, it says, pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Let cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. And so now he's saying, you know, you're not worthy. And you know that if God's given you this redemption, and I'm kind of repeating what I said earlier, then when your enemies come to you, as David says here, you can know that they're rebelling against God by coming after you. And again, Romans chapter 3, you can write down, Paul quotes this passage in Romans three ten through 18 to make his point that any righteousness not born out of God's mercy and forgiveness for us is rebellion against God. So any kind of self-righteous person, any person who's trusting in their own righteousness and talking about what they do for the Lord, boasting in their, their good deeds, or like I said earlier, there are those that will virtue signal or shame you because you don't pray enough for America. You know, and it's your fault that somebody does or doesn't get elected. It says that um, that's rebellion against God for people to do that to you. Even some possibly well-meaning, although the Bible says not well-meaning, but some believers trying to shame, trying to 
uh, coerce fellow believers to jump on the bandwagon with what they don't seem to have enough ability to do that the Lord's called them to do. They need reinforcements. Therefore, we've got to jump on their cause. And it might be a great cause, but it may not be what you were called to do. What did, what did the Lord say to the disciples when one of them was saying, hey, what about you know, John over there? Well, I'll take care of John. You do what I've called you to do. And so, you know, one of those things that uh, the Lord says is rebellion in Romans 3, 10 through 18. Psalm 5, 11 through 12, it says, But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor or grace. You will surround him as with a shield. God defends those who trust him. This is so important for us to know, but not only ourselves, but for those that we're sharing the Lord with. They need to know that he will defend them. They're not going to be coming up against a bunch of accusers. They're not going to be coming up against a bunch of self-righteous people when they come to hear a Bible study. God's going to defend them just like he defended us. We should remember this to let this be our attitude for our brothers and sisters as well. Trust, you know, they trust God. You know, he's their defender. He's their advocate, just like we trust him for those things for ourselves. It has to be a part of the gospel that we share with the world. If they will receive God's forgiveness and trust him, then we should tell them that he will defend them. You know, because the enemy will come with his accusations. He will come to discourage. He's going to come with condemnation. And our only defense, and their only defense, is God and God's faithfulness. Jesus came to save sinners, thieves, liars, adulterers, fornicators, prostitutes, boasters, even those that shed blood. He, there's only one, one type of person he cannot save, and that's the one that rejects him. That's the one that won't, rejects the gospel, that won't, uh, you know, you know, draw close to him when he draws close to them. And uh, when he calls them, draws close to them, and they just will have none of it. And he does. He's promised to do that. Remember, Paul said he knew nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. And we've got to go to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 3 and 4. And you probably have that one marked too, because that is the gospel whenever you want to share it. Um, Plain as day, Paul says, this is the gospel. Verse 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered you first of all, and that's going back to what I just said. Paul didn't want to know anything amongst them except Christ crucified. That's the first thing, top of the list, anytime you're sharing the gospel. First of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and he rose again the third day, and according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and the twelve, and on that over five hundred brethren, he was witnessed. And so, uh, first of all, that's the gospel. Colossians one, if you want to go a couple pages, and we'll kind of finish it up. Nineteen through twenty-three says it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, that by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through his blood of the cross, and you who were once were uh, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by the wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, 
and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And so that big if doesn't have to do with whether you're perfect. That big if there has to do with whether you're just hanging on to the Lord. Okay. Which you have heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So the question remains, going back to Psalm 5, verse 11. Will you put your trust in the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ? Amen. Lord, we just want to thank you for your word. We want to allow it to to come to our hearts and minds. We want to look these things up for ourselves so that we can take it to the world and so that we can uh, meditate on it, take comfort from it. And just, if nothing else, Lord, to see if any of this stuff that was said tonight is even true. We ask that you would be allowing your word to go out and not return void, accomplish everything you've desired. So, Lord, Lord go with us as we go about our week, and um, we just go out with the light, and we pray that you would not allow us to hide it under a bushel. In Jesus' name, amen. They're not going to be coming up against a bunch of accusers. They're not going to be coming up against a bunch of self-righteous people when they come to hear a Bible study. God's going to defend them just like he defended us. We should remember this to let this be our attitude for our brothers and sisters as well. Trust, you know, they trust God. You know, he's their defender. He's their advocate, just like we trust him for those things for ourselves. It has to be a part of the gospel that we share with the world. If they will receive God's forgiveness and trust him, then we should tell them that he will defend them. You know, because the enemy will come with his accusations. He will come to discourage. He's going to come with condemnation. And our only defense, and their only defense, is God and God's faithfulness. Jesus came to save sinners, thieves, liars, adulterers, fornicators, prostitutes, boasters, even those that shed blood. He, there's only one, one type of person he cannot save, and that's the one that rejects him. That's the one that won't, rejects the gospel, that won't uh, you know, you know, draw close to him when he draws close to them. And uh, what he calls them draws close to them, and they just will have none of it. And he does. He's promised to do that. Remember, Paul said he knew nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. And we've got to go to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 3 and 4. And you probably have that one marked too, because that is the gospel whenever you want to share it. Um, plain as day, Paul says, this is the gospel. Verse 15 Verses 3 and 4. For I delivered you first of all. And that's going back to what I just said. Paul didn't want to know anything amongst them except Christ crucified. That's the first thing, top of the list, anytime you're sharing the gospel. First of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And he was buried, and he rose again the third day, and according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas and the Twelve, and on that, over 500 brethren. He was witnessed. And so, uh, first of all, that's the gospel. Colossians 1, if you want to go a couple pages, and we'll kind of finish it up. 19 through 23. says, It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, that by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through his blood of the cross. And you, who were once were, uh, and you who once were alienated 
and enemies in your mind by the wicked works. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And so that big if doesn't have to do with whether you're perfect. That big if there has to do with whether you're just hanging on to the Lord. Okay. Which you have heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So the question remains, going back to Psalm 5, uh, verse 11. Will you put your trust in the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ? Amen. Lord, we just uh, want to thank you for your word. We want to uh, allow it to, to come to our hearts and minds. We, we want to look these things up for ourselves so that we can take it to the world and so that we can uh, meditate on it, take comfort from it. And just, if nothing else, Lord, to see if any of this stuff that was said tonight is even true. We ask that you would be allowing your word to go out and not return void, accomplish everything you've desired. So, Lord, Lord go with us as we go about our week, and um, we just go out with the light, and we pray that you would not allow us to hide it under a bushel. In Jesus' name, amen.